This morning's scripture reading is from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure and enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to your sight, my Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. Good morning, Elevation. My name is Susan Fish. When I was approached to preach at Elevation this week, I was told that for this season, we were looking to hear from a variety of people in our congregation and that the next few weeks would be not linked by theme. Oh, I thought to myself, it's like a church potluck. Do you remember those? Different people make a different kind of food. We lay it out on a long table and enjoy what each other brings to the meal. When I think of potlucks, I think of my mother's grandmother who had nine children. Every year, all of her descendants would gather at a family reunion in a schoolhouse where we all squeezed in and enjoyed a big potluck meal together. Some people brought the same food each time. We always knew who brought the baked beans, the butter tarts, and the KFC. Other people would bring fancy cakes, although the cakes could be different every time. When I brought food to a potluck in the before times, I did not have the gift of making food look fancy, so sometimes I would end up bringing home a bowl that was still half full. The food I make tends to be ugly, but delicious. So when I was asked to be part of this potluck sermon series, I had to think about what dish to bring, something that would be nourishing, but ideally appealing too. So I decided to go to the recipe book that the church has used for years, the lectionary. The lectionary offers Bible readings for each week of the year, a Psalm, an Old Testament reading, a gospel reading, and a New Testament reading. If you read the email that went out this week, you saw this week's lectionary readings and perhaps you read them. The person making a sermon out of the lectionary readings is a lot like someone doing a chop challenge where you're given certain ingredients to use for your cooking. The person given a chop challenge usually begins by opening up their basket and seeing what they have to work with. So that's what I did with the lectionary readings. And I want to tell you how I read Psalm 19 because I suspect it's how a lot of us do such readings. 
This psalm starts out by noticing that the heavens declare the glory of God. It describes how the sun and the moon operate and how we can learn from them about how creation and its creator work. Now, throughout Christian history, many people have referred to the two books of God, the Bible and the book of nature, saying that God is revealed through both. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul tells us, Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Martin Luther said, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars. Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection not in books alone, but in every leaf of springtime. We long for that resurrection um, sign in these snowy days. But at a time when we haven't often been able to gather in person in churches, I've been interested in where we have found sacred spaces. Meeting online and gathering together when we can have all been significant and much appreciated ways of being the church. But nature has also been a very important sacred space for many of us over the last two years. It is so good to get outside. We've noticed the waxing and waning of the moon. By this point in January, we're starting to be aware that the sun is rising earlier and setting later. We're finding ways to appreciate birds or pets and to find places to ski or hike when so many indoor places are closed to us. I have regularly walked a labyrinth as a way of finding sacred space, while others talk about being closest to God when they're hiking or spending time in creation. So that's the first six verses of Psalm 19. Then we get to verse seven, and I will tell you what happens to me over the next four verses. It is the same thing that happens when I read poetry or even see a long quote set out in a book. I end up skimming it. My eyes glaze over and I'm eager to get back to the story or the interesting parts. But if I have learned one thing in my last couple of years of theological studies, it has been to slow down my reading of the Bible, to pay attention when I'm tempted to gloss over and speed past something. The same is true for poetry. We've had this experience that we may skim through poetry the way we would read an article on the internet. There aren't that many words so we can get through them to the good stuff. But then someone reads poetry to us, reads it aloud, savors the words, and we realize in slowing down how much more really is there. So I want to invite us to slow down a bit over these next verses. The verses in the center of Psalm 19 talk about the benefits of God's law and word. The psalmist, David, describes the word of God in six different ways in these verses. The first calls it the law or the Torah, which refers to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, written by Moses, traditionally, the Torah. There's also the decrees, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, and the judgments or the verdict. Now, this may not sound like good news, but it sounds like it when you see what the psalmist does with this, because this psalm tells us what God's word does in and for us. It says, if we want our soul to be revived, if we want wisdom, 
joy. If we want enlightenment, the Bible, God's law, is where we will find it. The psalmist says God's word is better than fine gold and sweeter than honey. What this got me thinking about was that maybe this potluck sermon has something to do with the sermons we've heard the last couple of weeks about what the church is. The church is indeed an ecclesia and a koinonia, a gathered people and a community, but we are also a people formed by the word of God. I want to turn to the lectionary passage in Nehemiah 8 to see people who approach the Bible in this way. When the priest Ezra, it says, gets up to read to the people, it says he read the Torah or the law of Moses from early morning until midday. And all the ears of all the people were attentive. All the people stood up. When Ezra blessed the Lord, the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. This is a really strong physical reaction um, of appreciation and attention to God's word. And these are people who, like the psalmist in Psalm 19, see the value of God's law and are formed by it. So one reason I think this is so was because of their context. The whole book of Nehemiah describes the rebuilding of Jerusalem by Israelites who had been long exiled in Babylon. In the same way that we might long for church potluck dinners, they ached to go home. And during that time that they were in captivity, they didn't have access to the law of Moses, which had shaped them and told them who they were as God's people. And now finally, they did. Helen Keller, blind, deaf um, woman of about 100 years ago, wrote about talking with a friend who had just gone for a walk in the woods. When Helen asked her what she had observed, she said, and this is not something to say to someone who can't see, oh, nothing in particular. Helen Keller wrote about this, asking how it was possible to walk for an hour in the woods and see nothing noteworthy. She concluded that people who can see take these things for granted, that it's just human to not appreciate what we have and instead to long for what we don't have. She then went on to think about what she would look at if she were given three days of sight. She said first she would look at the faces of her friends and her beloved dogs. Then she wanted to see what the rug and the furnishings in her home actually looked like. She wanted to see a sunset. She wanted to see the stars. She wanted to walk through the woods and the fields, to go to museums to see great art, and to spend time in New York City seeing the hustle and bustle of all the people in great buildings. She writes, if you knew you were about to be stricken blind, I am sure your eyes would open to things you had never seen before, storing up memories for the long night ahead. You would use your eyes as never before. Everything you saw would become dear to you. Your eyes would touch and embrace every object that came within your range of vision. Then at last you would really see and a new world of beauty would open itself before you. The people in Nehemiah are Helen Keller granted those three days of sight. But Helen isn't simply listing what she wants. She's encouraging all sighted people to appreciate what we have. Similarly, us with the Bible. 
how do we move from skimming over it to responding like those people in Nehemiah to the Torah, listening to the Torah? Helen Keller's story makes me think of the play, Our Town, where there's a character who has the chance to look at an ordinary day in her life in a new way with appreciation. She notices things like clocks ticking and sunflowers, food and coffee, new iron dresses and hot baths. She notices them with the same appreciation we especially now have for potluck dinners and koinonia and Sunday school and dinner parties and sporting events. And she says, so all that was going on and we never noticed. Some of how we learn to respond to the Bible, like the people in Nehemiah's time, is simply about paying attention to what's going on, slowing down ourselves to read the Bible and slowing down our reading of the Bible. But some of it is also what the Bible reminds us. In that same play, Our Town, there's a conversation between two teenage siblings. The first says, I never told you about that letter Jane Crowfoot got from her minister when she was sick. He wrote Jane a letter, and on the envelope, the address was like this. It said, Jane Crowfoot, Crowfoot Corn- the Crowfoot Farm, Grover's Corners, Sutton County, New Hampshire, United States of America. Her brother says, so... What's so funny about that? She says, but listen, it's not finished. The United States of America, continent of North America, Western Hemisphere, the Earth, the solar system, the universe, the mind of God. That's what it said on the envelope. And the postman brought it just the same. It is simultaneously true for us that we're just plain Jane Crowfoot living on the Crowfoot farm in Grover's Corners, that we are the church at 22 Willow, the church that finds herself living among the people of Waterloo Region. But the Bible also reminds us that we live in the mind of God, that we are, as it says from our other lectionary reading in 1 Corinthians 12, the mysterious and cosmic body of Christ. As that body, it says we're to appreciate our diversity in a way that builds unity and caring for one another rather than quarreling or creating factions, and especially caring for those we might deem to be weaker. But to be a member of the cosmic body of Christ is not simply to hang out together as the church, or even just to hang out with God. It ought not be escapism to be part of the body of Christ. Christian mystic Dorothy Soleil argues that any mysticism or mindfulness that does not include the world and an attention to the suffering of the world is at best narcissistic and at worst dangerous. This brings us to Jesus in the gospel reading from Luke. This passage, Luke 4, has been called the programmatic statement of Luke, which means just like when you go to a play and you get a program that tells you what to expect, here Jesus's words give an encapsulated description of what Jesus will do in his body, in his life. And he says, quoting from the book of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
This passage also notes that it was Jesus's custom to attend synagogue on the Sabbath, which means he had been immersed in what the scriptures say. And now he applies those words, the passage taken from Isaiah, to what he is about to do. It is out of that immersion in the Bible that Jesus's ministry is shaped and formed. And it takes that same immersion in the Bible to shape and form us into the people, the church that God made us to be. If we return to the last verses of Psalm 19, we read what an immersion in God's laws and promises does for us and in us. Verse 11 says, by God's laws, God's servants are warned or enlightened. While verse 12 says, but who can detect their errors? Cleanse me from hidden faults. Verse 13, keep back your servant from arrogant sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be upright or more rightly complete and whole and innocent of complete rebellion. These verses make me think of the first chapter of the book of James in the New Testament, where the writer says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into God's perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The suggestion in these verses is that this is something we don't easily do without immersion in God's word, that it's too easy to skim over it like we would do poetry, to not see our hidden faults and not let God's word move us and saturate us into who we are and how we live. What ends up happening when we don't do this instead is something we, we fall into a belief that has been called moralistic therapeutic deism, which has been defined as the following five beliefs. First, God created and ordered the world and watches over human life. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to one another, the way it's taught in the Bible and in most other world religions, essentially the golden rule. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about ourselves. Four, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in our lives, except when we need God to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. The thing about moralistic therapeutic deism is that it's close, but it is not the message of the God of the Bible. It does not address our hidden faults. For me, when I work as a writer and editor, um, I work with other people's writing. I have a good handle on grammar. Um, I speak good, I write good. <laughs> but when I finish writing a book, I almost always send it to someone else to edit. And I say it's like a dentist going to another dentist for dental work. They might know what needs to be done, but they have blind spots and they probably are not able to put themselves through the pain they need to. Um, to repair their teeth. And I think moralistic therapeutic deism is a lot like that. It does not help us with our blind spots and isn't usually willing to drill into the spots of decay or sometimes drills in places where we shouldn't drill. We can be too hard on ourselves in a place where God um, is not convicting us. 
Moralistic therapeutic deism also only gives us a vague and pretty distant picture of God. It makes me think of when we think of a friend we haven't seen in a long time. The picture we get of them in our minds is so much flatter and more two-dimensional than their reality. When we spend time with a real person, we're so much more aware of the beauty and complexity of who they really are, and we can delight in our relationship with them. In one of my classes last fall, our professor asked us what metaphor or picture we would use for the Bible. It was a good question, and we had a wide variety of answers. For some people, it's a rule book. For others, it's a history or a mythology or fiction. For some, it's like a recipe book. Um, so one person said it was like a big book with thin pages with gold edges that we say is important, but we never really open. Another, it was a map. The picture for me is that the Bible is a love letter. It's the part of the conversation where we get to listen in on what God says is really important where God speaks to us, where God drops hints, where God tells us we are so deeply loved and invites us to join in the work described in Isaiah and again in the words and life of Jesus. But the Bible is also like a potluck supper. It has a wide variety of things in it. It's a mirror showing us where we are and how we are. When we slow down to look into it deeply, sometimes we might hear God nudging us saying, that part, that, that's for you today. That promise is for you. Or we might read parts that we think, that's not for us. So we can say to God, who could pray that psalm of vengeance? For who in our world would that kind of a prayer be good news? We might read the 1 Corinthians 12 passage and be reminded that the church is not only the cosmic community located right here in Waterloo Region, not only the ecclesia, not only the koinonia, but also the body of Christ. And it, we might be convicted that we are to work together just as all the parts of a physical body does, unified in purpose and care for one another, but diverse in our gifts and abilities. Maybe like the people in Nehemiah, we will weep as we read the Bible. Or maybe it will remind us, as the priest Ezra reminded the people, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. I don't know what you will take from the potluck supper that is the Bible, but I know that we need to come to the table and to sample what's there, to savor it and let it nourish us. So I want to suggest a simple way we can start. Returning to our picture that we of God having the book of the Bible and the book of nature, think about, I want to bring those together and think if you've ever walked along the beach or through the woods with a child or with me, you'll probably come home with a handful or a pocket full of stones or shells or sea glass or sticks or flowers. And that's what we can do with the Bible too. Immersion in the Bible does not have to mean hours and hours of Bible study or reading the whole thing from cover to cover each year. Um, this 17th century French bishop and spiritual director Francis de Sales suggests a way that we can be immersed in the Bible that's just like what we do when we go for a hike. And he says, those who have been walking in a beautiful garden do not leave it willingly without taking with them four or five flowers in order to inhale their perfume and carry them about during the day. Even so, when we have considered some mystery in meditation, 
we should choose one or two or three points which we have found the most relishing and which are specially proper to our advancement in order to remember them throughout the day and inhale their perfume spiritually. Some have called this practice florilegia, which is Latin meaning gathering flowers. And the idea simply is to read a portion of the Bible each morning, listening for the phrase or the words that stand out to you, the words of the love letter that are for you that day. Maybe you read a psalm in the morning and write the words of the Bible that stand out to you on a post-it note or in your calendar or on a chalkboard or a whiteboard. You come back to it a few times throughout the day for a little sniff, a little reflection on what God is saying to you. Unlike moralistic therapeutic deism, my experience is that these aren't always words that make me happy or feel good about myself. Sometimes they're words of correction. Um, sometimes there are words of lament where God gives words to, um, to my experience and that God is with me in it. But always there are words from the God who loves us and who is shaping us and forming us through his books of nature and the Bible. So I invite you to end with me as the psalmist does, having reflected on the sacred space of nature and the sacred nature of the word of God. At the end of Psalm 19, the psalmist writes, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.